Hello and welcome to the Borders of Equality podcast. This is a podcast made at Leiden University where we talk about immigration and political economy. We'll be covering things like welfare tourism, welfare chauvinism, and other isms that connect immigration and political economies around the world. This podcast is made possible by Leiden University and the Dutch Science Foundation. I'm Alex Afonso and I'm here with Sami Nagash and our guest Jan Kremers. Today we're talking about the free movement of labor in the European Union and how it can lead to a race to the bottom in wages. This has been an important topic of discussion over the last decade or so, especially since the last enlargement of the European Union. One important theme here has been the freedom to provide services and the so-called posting of workers. This allows the company to employ someone to perform work in one country, say Luxembourg, while the company and the worker are legally based in another country, say Poland. To talk about this, our guest is Jan Kremers, a researcher at Tilburg University and former member of the European Parliament. Jan has been researching the issue of labor mobility for over two decades, both within universities and in the trade union movement. So Jan Kremers, thank you for being with us on the podcast. So you've been involved both in um, in policymaking and in research, in looking at the implications of the of labor mobility in the EU, also for social standards. Can you tell us a little bit what is the freedom to provide services in the EU and why it can be a risk for uh, for labor standards? Yes, well, it, it can be a long story <laughs> because, in fact, it started already with um, at the foundation of the European uh, Community in that um, in, in, in the Treaty of Rome, and uh, I think it was in 1957. Uh, it was already enshrined that uh, uh, citizens inside that community had the right to move to uh, another member state and to look for a job or to work there. Uh, so that was basically the the start of the possibility for uh, workers to be mobile in uh, in in Europe. But of course, it was with uh, the founding fathers later on with 12 member states, 15 member states. And the basic, uh, let's say, or the starting point in that period was uh, what, um, let's say, in juridical terms is called uh, lex loci laboris. It means that if you go to another country, then uh, for your working conditions, for your social security, for your tax situation, the regulations, the rules of the country where the work is carried out, so in these cases for the host uh, uh, country had to be respected. That was the, 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 the basic principle. Um, and in fact, um, that was still the situation also as uh, the European uh, single market was uh, uh, created in the mid 80s. In the mid 80s, the idea was, well, we have to uh, lower, let's say, or get rid of the barriers in this market, in this European market, in this cooperation that we have with uh, uh, countries, because it will uh, bring more prosperity. Um, it will take away a lot of barriers for business and so on and so on. And in that uh, project of the single market, um, there was again this free movement of workers enshrined. Now, the problematic thing uh, with uh, the single market was that there was also the freedom to provide services. That is a normal issue, but there was also the possibility created that, um, in fact, companies could come over 
for a temporary period to do a job in a country. Uh, and there was no legal frame what that meant for the working conditions of these workers. In the social security, the, it was settled, it was regulated that they could stay in the social security of their uh, home country. Yeah. Imagine there is a, uh, a new metro line, metro line built in Amsterdam, then there is a large French company coming, uh, the contractor who wins that contract, and in the second layer of the subcontracting, there is a, um, a tunnel builder. <laughs> That tunnel builder comes over with his specialized team of people and these people are there for half a year or so. So in, that was the reason why, in fact, in the European uh, Union community and later on the Union, it was said, well, it, it is also for, in the interest of these workers that they stay in the social security of their home countries, logically. Otherwise, they had to have a break in their uh, uh, benefit rights and so on. So that was settled, but there was nothing settled in the area of pay and working conditions. Is there something that you have to respect if you come over with your workers to the Netherlands or to Belgium or whatever, uh, in, also in relation to the equal pay principle that was in fact established all over, uh, everywhere in, uh, in, in every country. And that um, at the start, um, and now we talk about, uh, let's say, 30 years ago, was not really seen as a problem because, you know, if a tunnel builder comes over with Austrian tunnel builders, then you don't have to worry about their pay and working conditions. You know, they were uh, treated like expats. But what happened after the, let's say, the borders disappeared uh, uh, under the influence of these economic freedoms is that this posting of workers, like it was called. So companies come over with uh, uh, their workers to do uh, for a temporary period uh, uh, a job in another country. That slowly changed into a, a, a recruitment mechanism for cheap labor. Not overall, not for the 100%, but there more and more you saw that there were companies uh, that posted their workers to another country, but they had no specialized, you know, uh, they had no specialism. They only, their only specialism was to deliver and to recruit cheap labor. Um, and that uh, was in fact the start of the discussion about posting of workers in Europe, um, led in the Europe of the 12 and later on 15 member states to the posting of workers directive. Um, and later on, you saw, especially with the enlargement, that, uh, um, well, it, there were not only uh, problems with uh, companies that, that had, in fact, no substance in the home country. Eh? They were just only recruiters and, and nothing else. Um, but you also saw that there were a lot of breaches. Uh, it was difficult to enforce the in, uh, posting directive uh, uh, regulation. It was well, there was. It was difficult to control that. Um, in fact, you saw in almost all European countries that the uh, compliance um, 
offices, labor inspectorates, and so on and so on, simply had not the capacity to control that everything was done in a decent way. But that's the long story. Because <laughs> you mentioned enlargement, I suppose this was really a big shock in the sense that the space within which this freedom takes place now involves very large wage differentials. I suppose in the beginning, in the 1980s, if you post French workers to the Netherlands, the risk of, of taking advantage of these differences were not that big. Now you can bring in Bulgarian workers to Denmark, perhaps, where the difference is a lot bigger. Yeah, yeah but well, th that is one, one thing of the enlargement. The other thing is that, um, and I think that that, that is uh, sometimes not really, let's say, clear in the mind of people that have to deal with it. You have to take into account that the, uh, the few, um, uh, let's say, directives and regulations uh, in the European Union that were developed as a kind of flanking social policy, they all stem from the early 90s. In fact, it was Jacques Delors who said, well, we need, uh, next to these economic freedoms, we also need, need some social guarantees that this, this is done in a decent way. Um, but the notion, these notions were elaborated. I mean, I was even involved myself uh, around let's say starting from 1988 1989 the wall was even still there so it was also for people that that were thinking about what is necessary to um, develop let's say some mechanisms and instruments to guarantee that workers rights are not breached um, had in their mind the situation of 12 later on 15 member states you know uh, and all these member states, um, uh, the three member states that came in at a certain moment, uh, Austria and Sweden and Finland, of course, were uh, already had also that tradition. All these countries had a tradition of uh, relatively law, raw, uh, strong labor legislation and collective bargaining mechanisms. And these were the two pillars also in, let's say, that were uh, seen as the basic pillars for this uh, European uh, social policy. Um, of course, it was impossible to imagine uh, that uh, um, 15 years later, 10 years later, there would be this enlargement because there was still, the, I mean, like I said, that the wall was still there and even after the wall uh, broke down, it was not uh, foreseen. Uh, that this enlargement would uh, take place. And there are two other mechanisms that, that also play a role, I think. Uh, one is uh, uh, the extreme outsourcing that took place. I mean, with, as we elaborated the ideas about posting of workers, uh, you know, we thought in, in terms like the example that I give, there's a big contractor coming over with specialized subcontractors coming over for a certain period of time. But what you saw in all kind of industries was more and more outsourcing of activities. Um, and that created a lot of space for these recruiters of cheap labor, combined with the flexibilization of the labor contracts, that made it relatively easy. And then all of a sudden you have 10 countries coming in with no tradition uh, in collective bargaining with, with no, in fact, there are no serious uh, employer organizations in Central and Eastern Europe. There are very weak trade unions in Central and Eastern Europe. So people are coming 
from a background that has nothing to do with the tradition that, so to say, was the basic philosophy for this uh, European social model. And like you say, with, with, with the pay level that is extremely low, uh, also with uh, huge unemployment. Uh, um, so there was a, all of a sudden a vast uh, reservoir of, of, of workers uh, uh, willing to come over. Uh, with also, as a consequence, a lot of abuses, uh, people are exploited, well, whatever you want. I mean, there is, of course, uh, a very, well, there is, there is a large part of the recruitment that is, uh, that is fine. Uh, but um, the, the problem is, as soon as you break down the relationship between an undertaking and its worker, and there is a transnational entity introduced that recruits and is the employer, then it is hard, uh, difficult to control whether everything is, uh, is, is okay, whether everything is done in a decent way. Mm-hmm. And that is what, what is happening uh, now, in fact, all over. Also, it, interesting, also in Central and Eastern Europe itself, mm-hmm. because there's a huge labor mobility now also in Central and Eastern Europe. They also have serious shortages, and you see that the same problem that first was seen as a kind of problem of Western Europe is, is, is repeating itself. There are always crooks that uh, uh, want to earn a lot of money by exploiting people. That's the problem. Uh, if it happens in Eastern Europe as well, where do they recruit their workers from? Well, <clears throat> first, first uh, there was, a, let's say, a few years ago, because we also had the economic crisis that also had an enormous effect. But it was still, let's say, a kind of intra-mobility in the Central and Eastern Europe, uh, European countries. Um, but now more and more you see that uh, uh, workers from the Belarus, from uh, the Ukraine are uh, recruited um, sometimes because they have a, a Polish passport or whatever to work in uh, in the Czech Republic or in Hungary or whatever. And it's very strange because, for instance, Hungary is now very has a very negative attitude uh, towards uh, migration, but they are discussing to recruit uh, people from the Ukraine. Uh, so in, in, uh, but that is what, what takes place. And you also have to realize that it is not only uh, labor shortages, but it also has to do with um, the development of certain regions in Central and Eastern Europe uh, that uh, the economic development and the growth that is taking place. I mean, in if you look at the automotive sector in Bratislava or in, in the Slovak Republic or in, in the Czech Republic, um, well, they have had serious, uh, uh, let's say, wage uh, pay deals with, 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 with high percentages of, of growth, of increase of, of pay. Uh, and you can earn now 1,500, 1,600 euros in the automotive in, in the Czech Republic. Now, well, I can imagine then that uh, it becomes attractive also for a Polish person who lives in the south of Poland to, to commute to that place instead of coming to the Netherlands or uh, to, to, uh, to Germany. And that is what is happening now slowly. I mean, I've also discussed with uh, some of the 
a prominent Dutch recruiters that try to have, let's say, decent recruitment, of course, but of course it's all um, uh, with, with the lowest uh, pay scales that uh, from stem from the collective bargaining. But they say we have more and more problems to find people in the western parts of Poland, for instance, because also in the western parts of Poland, in Warsaw and in the other cities, you see <coughs> that the pay level is increasing and it takes quite a lot to leave your land and soil so if 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 the difference in pay becomes lower then you see that you stay near to your family or to your social environment um, and 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 one final thing about who's coming in what you also see is that uh, member states in europe have the possibility to um, engage third country workers if if there is real evidence of uh, uh, let's say skill shortages and whether that is correct or not but you see that in certain uh, countries in central and eastern europe also in the baltics uh, for instance uh, people from the philippines are recruited because there is a shortage on skilled uh, truck drivers for instance and so on and so on the problem of course is do they work then in the baltic countries or uh, is it just the way to get in mm -hmm. Recruiters that <coughs> see this as a method to get them inside the European Union and the, the day after or the week after they work in Germany or in Sweden. Because once you're in, you have the same rights as... Uh... Once you are in, you can be... Well, you don't have the same rights, but you can be uh, posted. You can be uh, in the frame of the free provision of services. Your company can send you uh, abroad. That, that's that's, uh, that's the, the trick that is used then. So you said that the freedom of services opens possibilities for all types of abuses and using the, the system. Can you say a bit more about what kind of forms these abuses uh, take? Is it, is it on social security contributions? Is it on wages? Is it on other ways where employers are able to bypass labor standards in receiving countries? Yeah, well, it is. Um, there are a few business models in this in this world in, in this type of of, of recruitment um, um, and they you could say that there is a range of um, attitudes and models um, if you um, if you are looking for cheap labor uh, but you want to do it all let's say uh, perfectly legal then um, the freedom uh, to provide services can be uh, a mechanism to recruit workers. Uh, temporary, and the question is whether it is really posting or not. But anyway, uh, the, the calculation is very simple. If you um, have a company in Belgium um, and you need workers and you want to have them for the cheapest uh, pay uh, based on the collective agreement and Belgium uh, rules and so on and so on, then you can uh, start a subsidiary somewhere in Cyprus or so. 
and uh, you can pay that you can pay uh, British Limited in Malta for 39 uh, British pound for instance and then you are the director owner of a company and then the freedom to provide services gives you the opportunity with that entity and then the formal employer of the workers is that company in Malta yes that's that's that that is possible ah, yeah. then uh, you recruit for instance uh, uh, workers in Romania and through that Maltese uh, company you send them to uh, to Belgium Well, then it, it is difficult for the uh, compliance officers for the labor inspectorate or social inspection in Belgium to control whether everything is legal. But it can be done legal if you have, a, a, let's say, a, a job to do for half a year with these workers. Uh, you have to <coughs> you have to pay the Belgian minimum then according to the posting directive. But they can stay in the social security of their home country or their country of origin and in this case officially they should stay in, in the social security of Malta the, the case that I gave to you well in case of posting the directive the European rules say that um, you are sent by the company so the company has to take care of uh, lodging has to take, to care, take care of transport and so on and so on okay you can calculate that what does it cost eh? I have to pay the minimum Belgian minimum May, uh, but Social Security is the lower probably from Cyprus or Malta. Uh, I have to pay uh, lodging, I have to pay transport. That, that is the sum. And if everything is, let's say, perfectly legal, then you get to a certain uh, labor cost. Um, but there is another model as well. You can also say, well, if I suggest that this worker is coming over, Um, as a mobile worker who uses the freedom eh, of workers to go abroad, then the calculation is, well, of course, from the first day on, he is a Belgian employer, uh, employee. Uh, so I have to pay, well, he has to be paid at least the minimum pay scale of uh, collective agreement or whatever. Um, Social Security is Belgium. It's the Belgium Social Security, but he or she has to pay himself for the lodging or for the, uh, the living. Uh, any he or she, she has to pay himself for um, uh, transport or whatever, if he wants to go home. Now, that gives you also a labor cost. You see that in certain industries, there is already this calculation. What is the cheapest? If I suggest that he or she is posted or if I suggest that he or she took his luggage and said well I think that I go and look for a job in Belgium that, that, that is already the matter still talking about things that are perfectly legal now what happens now is that um, um, both in cases of uh, workers that are uh, mobile and let's say use this possibility of the free movement and in workers that are posted you see that there are a lot of breaches the minimum wage is not respected or they get the minimum wage but they work much more than 40 hours uh, and they get still get uh, they get no payment for overtime or whatever and so on and so on you see that there are uh, in case of posting um, double pay slips that suggest much more in the country where the work is carried out than in, in the home country uh, and that of course has an effect on the payment of social security uh, the country of origin has then in fact a too low 
contribution uh, uh, of what should be uh, be paid. You see breaches with uh, with um, yeah lodging. You see that people live in situations that are uh, absolutely crazy, and so on and so on. So there, th- that is let's say a, a second s- example. The first one is perfectly legal, but uh, on the cheapest uh, possible way. The second is breaches. There are breaches officially. It is still you could say well it is. Uh, there is posting or or, 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 or there is uh, free movement uh, and that is applied, but uh, there there are serious breaches. Now, and the third, uh, um, and you can see that also in research, a third uh, phenomenon or feature is that, yeah, it is said that people are posted, but they are not posted at all. Uh, people are recruited, uh, 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 sign something that they are self-employed or whatever. Uh, these kind of stupid things uh, are not paid at all. They wait at the end of the week uh, uh, for the mobile phone to ring. Uh, then they hear where they, where they will get their money. Plain exploitation in different forms. Because the difference if they are formally self-employed is that they don't have to employers don't have to pay social security contributions for them, right? Because they're independent. Uh, and there is also the- no pay. Uh, uh, there is no floor in the payment. Now, the problem with, uh, with self-employed is that um, officially, um, if someone comes from abroad who is self-employed, he or she can be posted. But the uh, core, the hardcore of the working conditions and pay uh, that have to be respected according to the uh, uh, posting directive no longer apply because he or she is providing services he or she himself so to say uh, well there there is um, social security obligation if, uh, based on the country of origin still um, but for the rest he or she has to uh, to take care of everything um, and the 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 what's the, the most problematic in this uh, respect is I've, I've been involved in several uh, control activities of, of labor inspectorate, for instance, uh, in Belgium or whatever. And th- there was a case in Belgium, for instance, where um, they found 200 Bulgarian self-employed posted workers. And they working, they were working in, in, in the automotive side by side with other colleagues. And of course, there was no, it had nothing to do with self-employed. If you if you are working in the automotive, uh, in the production line of cars, then in fact there should be equal payment, notwithstanding wherever you come from. Um, now the Belgium inspection uh, investigated, and they had um, there is in the in the posting of workers directive there is one article that's Article two two that says that. It is the host country who decides whether you are a worker or self-employed, whether you are the status of the worker. So uh, with regard to pay and working conditions, now the inspection made a case out of it and they, the, the judge said, you are right, these are workers. I mean, they are just working on this production line. They have no own equipment. They have no own say about working time or whatever. There's subordination. The user undertaking is simply using this. Um, but the, the schizophrenic thing was that they uh, then said, okay, for the, in, the, in the field of working conditions, you are a, a worker, but they still had an A1 form. And that is a form that says, well, I'm 
registered in the social security of my uh, country of origin and I pay contributions there um, so um, um, in fact it is it is an, a, a, an aspect of being posted in in the area of social security and the withdrawal of that a1 form is not possible by the authorities of the host country the withdrawal is only possible by the country that has handed out this form and that is of course a very strange thing and I come back to what I said at the start in fact if you look at the original starting point of the the Lex Loci uh, labors if you go to Rome do as the Romans do the lay uh, respect the in Germany they have a very nice word for it Ortsüblichkeit that means that you have to uh, stick to local standards of course, that is completely vanished from the scene. Then, if if it is possible uh, to uh, to hand out forms that are fake that have nothing to do with the real status uh, of workers, and that uh, that is a serious problem. That's a serious problem for compliance officers. It's a serious problem for um, yeah, also for the social partners uh, uh, that want to have uh, a decent regulation of, uh, of labor relations, industrial relations. Yeah. So the employment of these posted workers involves being registered as a worker in different countries so where, where you actually perform the work and then you still stay registered in the social, social security system of your, of your home country. And, and you said that this poses a number of problems of enforcement. So is it easy to achieve some coordination between countries to actually check that the workers employed in Belgium are actually paying the right amount of social security contributions in Bulgaria, Romania, or wherever, wherever they come from? Well, it, it is on the one hand, it is improving, but it is still very problematic. And the reason is very simple, in fact. You know, we created a, a European single market. Uh, I'm I'm very much in favor of that. I, I really I'm also in favor of the free movement uh, of, of citizens. I think a free movement of workers. I think that that's a, a, a big, let's say, uh, uh, positive thing. But what we also did, we created a frame for the freedom of establishment of uh, a, a corporation, of a company, of a firm. The firms are still established according to national company law, but once established, you have to respect that they are established. There is this freedom of establishment. So, like I said, you and I, we can become this afternoon through e-registration, the owner of a company in Malta. And once that is established, the freedom to provide services guarantees also, it's also a European frame, guarantees that I can move around with workers and provide services all over Europe. The control whether everything is uh, legal and is, is, is uh, uh, let's say, done in a decent way is still a national affair. Labor Inspectorate works at the national level. The Social Security instances, they, their competence ends at the, the border. Even the, let's say, the tax, uh, the income tax or labor cost related tax uh, ends at the 
national border. And it means in situations where uh, you think, well, but this is this is this is really this is cheating, that uh, you depend on the cooperation with authorities in other member states. Now the problem is that um, if you look at the situation of a worker, every country has what I always call his silos. For social security, you have uh, this uh, department or this uh, uh, office that is responsible, and then you have it for labor, and you have it even for labor contracts, and you have it for and so on and so on. And but the situation of a person who comes over, you cannot divide that into these different departments. So you, you need to cooperate more. And the problem is that every country has his different, let's say, uh, 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 demarcation between these silos. So if you want to deal with, for instance, if you have a problem with Germany, yeah, well, the Dutch, it has taken quite some time, but now have a, uh, um, a more horizontal approach uh, by the labor inspectorate. But if they have to deal with Germany, it is difficult to find who is my counterpart, who is my, so to say, sister organization that I can deal with. Um, uh, because the silos are different in every country <laughs> and there is no horizontal approach or uh, well, some countries have started with that. Now, if you are confronted with, um, and I've, well, let's say a, a Dutch transporter who has a series of, very often it's a series of subsidiaries that ends in Bulgaria with one company where he or she is, is the, the, own, the owner, director of that subsidiary. And if the recruitment is done through that subsidiary. Now, at the moment where the Dutch labor inspectorate thinks, well, these Bulgarian uh, transporters that uh, work for this Dutch company, we should in fact control whether everything is genuine. If they visit this co company, the company will say, well, you can ask us everything about the Dutch company, but if you want to know what is happening in Bulgaria, you have to go to Bulgaria, knowing that the inspect Dutch inspectorate has no competence at all to do whatever in Bulgaria. So that is that is the 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 play that the tricks that are are used, um, and therefore, uh, well, there there is a, there is more and more cooperation between labor inspectors and and, and other compliance offices, uh, also transnational cooperation, but. Um, you have to all, always have to realize that you that these national borders are uh, a barrier to be really effective. It also counts for sanctioning. I mean, social fraud in in the European Union is still not seen as a major offense. So it means that if the Dutch inspectorate, uh, for instance, acts and finds out that there, uh, an arrangement with a, with such an artificial company is illegal they can withdraw it from the dutch market but a week after that same company can start all over again in belgium with the same with the same practices so that's that's a problem the, the, the i find it's interesting because going a bit of course here what is the problem for dutch authorities is what the netherlands also sometimes accused of doing when it comes to taxes yes, where course. other companies no, 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 but it, uh, i mean the trust is 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 a, is a perfect example of artificial arrangements 
but then in the in the, in the in the area now what i have always said is that you know the the this this absolute priority for the freedom of establishment and the freedom to provide services in europe has also opened the door for uh, smaller crooks in the in, in in the social area to cheat you know we had it already for the big uh, uh, multinationals or for very rich people that you could go to the jersey islands or whatever uh, and then that the trust uh, uh, assists you um, but the, in fact in the social area this is copied um, I think that still there is less money going on in, in that area but it is it is copied and you see also that um, like in the the tax uh, domain where you have a whole industry of what I call incubators eh? they these incubators create for you this facade that is copied also in the social area. If you go to uh, to the internet and you Google, then you will find uh, one billion hits with ready-made companies, and these ready-made companies all over, all over the world, uh, Europe, and they, they they and then well they they offer you uh, like I said for forty euro a company, and they also uh, their advertising is well we have established this company five six years ago it is empty it has no activity and so on but if you buy it it gives a good impression because it it the longevity of the uh, it shows the longevity of the company, and then you can use it and uh, what is even more this industry like the trust uh, offices. This industry provides you with uh, uh, content, even with fake proceedings of AGMs, uh, so of, of, uh, of, of, of meetings of the board, uh, whatever. If you buy, if, if you pay a few uh, euros extra, then they uh, organize a lady for you who picks up the phone in Malta and says, oh, okay, you want to talk with the director of uh, company X, I'll plug you through. And you sit here in your in your uh, in your living in the Hague, and you say, "Oh, with the director of the company X, and so can I help you?" I mean, it's it's completely fake. It's a, it's a virtual it's a virtual world. It's a virtual office, and it it, it is an industry of I always call it white criminals, white boy, uh, uh, white color criminals who earn a lot of money in recruiting, uh, organizing the recruitment of cheap labor. I had a friend in Switzerland whose job was to sit in an office in Geneva and to receive mail for companies who officially were based in Switzerland and then to send to forward the mail to yeah. Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or wherever they were based yeah. to look like they were a respectable company yeah. based in Switzerland. Yeah. No, no, but that, that is that is the problem with artificial arrangements in the in, in the area of company law. And the problem is that um, I am doing some some research in this area at the moment. Is that um, you know we have deregulated uh, uh, in all countries. We have deregulated uh, the uh, registration of companies, the establishment of companies, the creation of companies. Why? Well, that that is that was part of the let's say the neoliberal ideology. Uh, you had to get rid of uh, of all these uh, barriers, uh, the entrance to entrepreneurship. Uh, hallelujah! That uh, that's uh, what we are going for: simplification, deregulation. That is still to a certain extent the case, but it meant also that all notions in the company law 
uh, that it was necessary to build in guarantees for uh, creditors, uh, for workers, uh, uh, even for suppliers, they disappeared. And um, I talked about this chain of companies that is uh, very often created. If you look at, uh, again, at malified uh, uh, fraudulent activities, then very often, uh, for instance, also these companies, these smaller virtual companies are also used to block further investigations because they can, if you have established it for 40 euros, then you it can easily go bankrupt. And the investigation ends in the dead end street. I mean, and that is what happens. At a certain moment, I found, uh, you, you compare it with the trust, I think that's a very good comparison, but I found out uh, an attorney's office in Liechtenstein who had 23 companies established. And some of them had a, um, a life cycle of only two or three years. And then I knew exactly why, what it served for. It is simply a method to, if, if there is a serious investigation by the authorities, then you go bankrupt and, and then all the chain is broken, so to say, and you end up in a dead end street. So uh, it was also in, uh, and, and first of all, it was a national, uh, situation. You, and I did some investigation 10 years ago uh, where we found out that national company law um, was deregulated all over in every country. It was a kind of beggar thy neighbor uh, a policy what, 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 uh, what was elaborated. Um, the argument was, was we have to be competitive with the so-called BRIC countries, you know, Brazil and whatever. But the, that, I mean, that was not uh, the outcome. The outcome was that there was more and more competition among the EU member states to attract companies. Yeah, that, that was uh, lower, 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 lower the conditions for establishment. That was, that was the, um, the ultimate message, so to say. Um, but the consequence has been that there is a jungle now of ready-made companies that are, yeah, fake, virtual, whatever. There was a, a very interesting study in Belgium about uh, what they call then shell companies. And Belgium is not very prominent if you look at the list of countries that are really very prominent with these uh, uh, virtual companies or uh, whatever. But in this survey that was done by a consultancy, they found out that in Belgium there were 350,000 empty companies. 350,000. Now, if only 1% is, is, is used by crooks, that is already 3,500. I mean, so I don't say that these 350,000 are all uh, uh, bad or whatever. I mean, there can be also companies that simply no longer exist or whatever. But it is so easy to establish a company and there is no, and that is what I find now in my research, In if you look at, uh, let's say, the regulations, European and national, in the area of company law, if you look at the regulations of uh, provision of services, European and national, there is no definition of what is a genuine undertaking. What is a real existing Undertaking And in the area of uh, social security and working conditions, there are some notions about there has to be substance and so on and so on. But like I said, the incubators can uh, easily create that substance and create a facade. That's the virtual world that we are living in.
It's 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 interesting. Like, I mean, if you go to these sites, also the the even the arguments that they give you, they are very open uh, about uh, yeah. Well, we can provide you with everything. Yeah, um, that's. I think it's very interesting that you mentioned uh, the uh, situation with uh, tax uh, tax firms here, or these firms that sort of serve to circumvent taxes yeah. uh, here. Um, and one thing that I find particularly interesting about that is that there's uh, somewhat divergent uh, perspectives on that, depending on which member states uh, you're looking at. Uh, for example, the Netherlands might support this arrangement because uh, we are very good at that, but some other member states suffer from this and lose a lot of uh, potential tax income and revenue. Uh, and one thing that I find interesting about this, if you uh, apply it to this context, um, would you say that the member states that predominantly send uh, immigrants or posted workers to other countries, uh, do you think they support the arrangements uh, arrangements such as they are now? Or do you think that uh, they're also struggling with this, that they're trying to re-regulate or regulate this and uh, are just unsuccessful at doing that? Yeah. No, well... Uh, no, I think that the, and that 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 idea or that conscience is is growing also that um, um, it is negative for us all what is taking place. Um, you know, if if you look at I, I've analyzed uh, twenty seven uh, files of the Dutch Labour Inspectorate uh, where there were problems or question marks related to labour mobility and uh, uh, posting of workers, and I found out that these <coughs> artificial arrangements, these 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 corporate entities that were used uh, to recruit workers, basically were set up. In this case, by Dutch people, if if you look at that whole chain, and that's logical. I mean, someone in Timoshwara has no idea about the labor market in the Netherlands. So what is happening is, let's say, the user undertaking or people that are near to the user undertaking, they uh, know what the Dutch labor market is looking for, and they start this search and they then use these artificial arrangements. Um, so in that respect, um, you can say that the circumvention, um, it, can, it can be even without any fraud, but, but these constructs are mainly based on the fact that there is a huge, uh, let's say, scenery of user undertakings that are looking for workers for cheap workers. The problem has been in the past that in also in the cooperation of uh, uh, the compliance officers, the labor inspectorates and so on and so on, uh, we saw very often that um, the uh, compliance officers in the host country were very uh, much focused on pay and, and so on and so on. And we're not so interested in uh, social security, for instance, because I said well, social security is of the host of the, of the home country, something of the country of origin. That has changed because uh, people are more and more aware of the fact that um, uh, this circumvention of social security also uh, leads to a situation where it is, it is not possible to build up a welfare state in the countries of origin. So what is happening is, in fact, 
uh, in those cases where the, where there is real where there are serious breaches, you see that in fact uh, uh, money is withdrawn from from society, whether it is in the host country or in the home country. And for instance, if you look at a country like Bulgaria, I often use that example now. Um, uh, Bulgaria had 20 years ago some 9 million, a uh, population of 9, 9, 9 million citizens. That is now less than 7, 7 million. The uh, male, also the female, but mainly the male population between 25 and 50 has left the country. 2 million. They are working somewhere. Now, if they don't, let's say, pay the right uh, the, the contribution for the social security, it will be impossible to build up uh, a, a welfare state in Hungary. That's, that's a serious problem. The estimation is that uh, in 20 years time, Bulgaria's population will be decreased further to 5 million. What, what, what happens then is that what is left uh, a country with, with a lot of uh, pensioners, with very poor uh, state pension, very low, po women, children, that's it. So uh, it is in the interest of, 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 let's say, all of us that these kind of contributions are done in a decent way. And the, so I don't, I don't, I refuse to think in, in, in East-West uh, uh, terms in this case. Also because you see that the, the history is repeating itself now with the mobility in, 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 in Central and Eastern Europe. So uh, I, I think that there is an enormous, uh, uh, well, that, that also if you look at political uh, developments in Central and Eastern Europe, I think that it is, uh, that there is an argument for them also to cooperate as much as possible, although they still think that they have a competitive advantage in uh, in, in in accepting uh, cheap labor because because there's been recently a challenge in the European Court of Justice I believe from Hungary and Poland yeah. against these new rules in the, yeah. to make this regulation of posted workers more restrictive yeah. so uh, there seems to be still some distributional well, conflicts in that the, respect. The, the argument of uh, let's say conservative uh, governments in Poland and um, and Hungary is that um, uh, that you can compete also in in the area of wage cost. So they don't accept this uh, basic notion of what I call the lex loci laboris that you have to stick to local standards uh, where the work is carried out, um, and that is an ultra liberal uh, position. Um, that uh, that they apply, and it's very strange but well on the other hand you can see that uh, uh, let's say uh, uh, there are more autocratic regimes where this kind of economic thinking is is applied but that that is uh, that is that is uh, correct the funny thing was that uh, you know in the uh, earlier uh, enlargements for instance with Spain and Portugal at the very beginning there was um, also um, there were groups in in these countries that also had that uh, that idea uh, that it is a competitive advantage if you can deliver a cheap labor, uh, but they they very soon left that uh, position also because they saw that um, 
if there is not a uh, let's say a a, a a basic flaw if they're not if there is not a core of principles that that are let's say respect are to be respected in the in in the place in the country where the work is done that that even in their situation the everything that they established through labor legislation or through collective bargaining was immediately circumvented because there was no it's very interesting to see that the starting point one of the starting points for the uh, posting the uh, debate and, and that led in fact also to uh, to this european debate was uh, during the building of the olympics uh, the olympic uh, premises in barcelona that was in 1988-1989. Um, very interesting. The the unions, the trade unions, used uh, these Olympic uh, uh, premises and, and and buildings and stadiums. They used that site to force the employers in Spain to negotiate a collective agreement for the very first time in the sector. So it it, it leads to a collective agreement in construction. And then they were confronted with the fact that, um, for instance, the Olympic swimming pool was built in a chain of 38 subcontractors. And they said, they said, well, we don't have control. We cannot guarantee that our collective agreement is established, is respected. So they said, well, we need an instrument to make that collective agreement to a certain extent also binding for foreign specialized subcontractors, sub, 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 subcontractors who come over here to do uh, uh, this work and it was immediately clear for the, the Spanish trade union movement but also I think in the Spanish politics that uh, there was an argument to have this opposing uh, directive and in, in Portugal it took uh, longer but they they at a, at a certain moment also said well we need this otherwise the few things that we have established whether through bargaining or through labor legislation are immediately uh, eroding, circumvented, whatever. Because yeah. I remember in Portugal in the late 90s, there would be lots of Portuguese workers working on construction sites in, in France or elsewhere, yeah. but the construction sites in, in Portugal, there would be lots of Ukrainian workers. Yeah. Yeah. So you always have this chain yes, of yes, displacement. Yes, there is always this. No, no, but that is what in fact happens now in Central and Eastern Europe. And uh, you know the the the, the problem uh, uh, then is uh, if you don't have this floor that is basically let's say uh, a formulated based on the regulation in uh, the country where the work is done, uh, then yeah there is no then 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 it's only the law of the jungle uh, and and then you in fact legitimize uh, ex plain exploitation. Because that's that was uh, was happening then. Um, so how can governments actually regulate this? Um, what kind of instruments do governments still have to? Well, uh, there is of course. Um, it is interesting to see how how let's say the evolution has been. Um, as we started the discussion about posting uh, in the late eighties, um, there was only. In fact, only Belgium had, uh, let's say, a real decent EU-proof regulation because they had collective agreements that were generally binding by a royal decree. If you didn't respect it, there was criminal law applicable. 
So that was relative, that was tough, and they had labor legislation that was uh, strong. And what does it mean for them to be generally applicable? Well, they were generally applicable uh, irrespective of where the company came from. As if you worked in the Belgium territory, you had to respect uh, these collective agreements. That that was the, uh, uh, including the pay. Uh, scales. Now, the interesting thing was that as I discussed with uh, uh, at European level with colleagues this this this, this notion of posting and how to organize it, uh, we also s- analyzed the situation in the different member states, and we found out that it was necessary to to uh, start to repair our national systems. To give you one example, the the Dutch um, had collective agreements, generally binding. Not under criminal law, but administrative law. But anyway, uh, under civil under civil law. Uh, but the collective agreements, uh, for instance, in the construction sector, said, "Well, a posted worker is not a worker under the definition of this collective agreement." So it didn't apply for posted workers. So they had to repair that. And in, in the next negotiation that they had, a collective bargaining uh, in the sector, they repaired that. They changed that in order to have the collective agreement applicable for everyone that worked in the construction sector in the Dutch territory. So another example is, uh, because you are already asking something, want to ask something else, the German situation was very special. Germany had a strong labor legislation and they had collective agreements that were generally binding. But the pay scale was not generally binding. And that was the start of the discussion in Germany about minimum wage. Do we need a statutory minimum wage? And at the very beginning, uh, only the sectors with, uh, let's say, a lot of uh, low-paid, repetitive, and so on and so on, uh, labor-intensive uh, work, were in favor of a, uh, a minimum wage. But the, the the big IG Metall in those days were against it because they said, well, it takes away every stimulus for workers to become a member of the union if there is a, a, a statutory minimum uh, wage. Well, IG Metall changed this position later on because they also more and more saw that in, also in manufacturing there are uh, sectors and branches uh, that uh, where this uh, this floor is, is is important as soon as there is more and more foreign uh, uh, foreign workforce coming in. So uh, it, you can see that uh, you asked me what can member states do. Well, first look whether your own regulation is EU proof or not. And in fact, we saw the same as the posting directive was implemented uh, in the late after 96. There were countries, for instance, that said, well, it's not necessary to register uh, companies that come over to post, uh, to work with posted workers. That was the UK, Sweden, and the Netherlands. Other countries said, no, they have to notify, they have to be registered and so on and so on. As a consequence, you saw that, let's say, in, later on, uh, as, as, as more and more people came over, we had, in the Netherlands had no idea about the size of that work, workforce. We had no idea about, uh, well, what is the, so to say, the share of, of, of foreign workers, how many workers are posted in the Netherlands and so on and so on. So the... So the I think that it is very important to to assess 
your own national legislation and the implemented European legislation from that perspective, from the perspective of mobility, from the perspective of uh, uh, the freedom of establishment and the provision of services. That, that it, it, you need to have uh, other glasses to look through. So you just need to ensure that there's at least a wage floor and also that uh, if there are collective bargaining agreements in place that they also apply to post workers. Yes, and and uh, you need to be proactive also in situations where, uh, let's say, (coughs) all dimensions of the work um, go into the direction of a worker and not a self-employed, for instance. Uh, and and that in that respect, uh, you see that there is quite a difference between member states. Some member states are not proactive at all. Others are much more proactive. Uh, to quote again, Belgium for a certain while was very, very active. And the there was even a moment where the Commission, the European Commission, thought, well, we will start an infringement because they ask too much in the area of registration, notification, and so on and so on. Whilst other countries didn't give a damn uh, about it, were very reluctant in that area. And what's... Uh what makes that one country is more proactive in this respect? Is that a function of social partners in the... To a certain extent, it has to do with uh, with, with activities of social partners, with, uh, I think, for instance, in Belgium, also with uh, with a high uh, <coughs> union density. Of course, uh, the Belgium situation is, uh, is, is completely different in that respect. Uh, it also has to do with, um, yeah... Uh, with priorities, with political priorities. Um, I mean, in in recent weeks, we have had, again, a lot of fuss here in in the Netherlands about uh, exploitation and and so on and so on. But I have um, carried out some research in the last two, three years, also among employers and then among the user undertaking, because that's the right word to say. And you see that uh, there is also because of the the populist uh, discourse uh, almost a, a taboo to talk about it, but on the other hand, they all work with uh, with with foreign uh, labor. They all work with labor migrants, so we don't talk about it, uh, but we do it, and it's in fact very hypocrite. Because I, I think that the, the debate should simply be on the table. Uh, do we need uh, labor migrants? Yes, uh, there are serious shortages. Okay, then let's regulate it. Uh, if uh, you know, if, if a company is established, as now in, 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 in Brabant, for instance, there is a, a new company coming in, a logistical center, and they need 1,000 workers. Uh, what happens is they outsource that the recruitment of these workers to through to two agencies and the user undertaking. So the company that will take these workers uh, on board as workers says, "We are not the employer. We don't. We are not liable. We are not responsible." They throw that over the fence, so to say. Well, that's hypocrite because I mean they need these workers. So there should be, if you discuss with them or with these kind of companies. Then they say, well, we are not the employer. It's not our human resource affair. It is just our department of planning which says we need so and so much, as, as if you open a lid, uh, a can uh, with, 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 with workforce. And the problem 
is then that not only uh, let's say for pay and working conditions and so on and so on these workers are depending on their de jure their uh, their agency because the agency is is the 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 employer in this triangle but also everything that has to do with the living conditions with the housing and so on and so on is not really so to say seen by the user undertaking as their problem and and that leads to serious tensions in society leads to serious tensions in the region and i think that it is uh let's say from also not not only from a moral perspective uh we talk a lot about corporate social responsibility but in this case such a user undertaking cannot takes uh, take his hands off of that kind of responsibility even if he uses agencies or middlemen or recruiters that serve as the employer for the worker there is a a, a corporate social responsibility that uh, should is in the hands of that leader of the chain so to say <laughs> so more liability in this respect uh, related to and towards the consequences of the recruitment um, i think that that is something that we should organize and settle and and uh, because what happens now is that you often see that uh, well like i said they say well we are not the, the employer that is that's correct perfectly legal but it doesn't take away the responsibility to have uh, also to create a decent living situation and decent, decent housing and so on and so on and that's yeah well and like i said i yeah You know, the Netherlands has always been uh, a country of trade. Uh, a lot of products come are coming in uh, in uh, in Rotterdam, and we pack them in other boxes and transport to to, to the rest of the world. Um, but we also have a tradition, and that's often forgotten, of um, uh, looking at production sites as a community of stakeholders. Uh, where people take care of each other and so on and so on, that there are stakeholders with different interests, but that you have to find a compromise also to serve everyone, to, to, to have a, a decent share for everyone. And in this model, that has completely disappeared because the user undertaking perhaps has his own staff and his own uh, workforce that is directly engaged. And then there are a lot of people walking around uh, uh, through agencies or middlemen and they are not seen as their workers as as my workers i mean that's 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 a breed that's a complete let's say uh, 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 paradigm change with how a company functions the european court of justice has placed quite a big role in in the issue of, of free movement of workers and services could you say a bit about what what its role has been There is a certain um, evolution, I think, in that respect, also in the Court of Justice, because uh, <clears throat> you know, if if you look at the development of the European Union and the single market, uh, uh, then uh, one could say that um, um, at the start there was this notion that um, yeah, we create um, a unified um, 
market with economic freedoms and so on but that there has to be also a flanking a social policy um, um, people like uh, Jacques Delors who was then uh, president of the European Commission was very much in favor of that um, that notion uh, has been left behind uh, from the mid 1990s on you can see that there uh, is a kind of paradigm sh change uh, where um, also in several areas of the European politics, you saw that um, uh, competition became the main slogan. Uh, and uh, competition had to be everywhere, even in company law. You, for instance, in company law, you could see that uh, at the start of the internal market, it, it was said, well, we should harmonize company law so that there is a kind of level playing field for every yeah, one. Uh, that was left behind in the early 90s, in the mid 90s. Uh, um, and uh, uh, company law all of a sudden became a production factor like uh, uh, good infrastructure or whatever. So it became a part of that compet compet uh, competition. And in fact, you can say that the, um, the there was primacy given to the economic freedoms. Um, freedom of establishment uh, became a kind of holy <laughs> thing, holy grail, uh, the, the freedom to provide services, uh, um, uh, barriers had to be taken away and so on and so on. And you can see that uh, the European Court of Justice went in that same direction. Um, they, if there were complaints, then, uh, especially in, in, in the social area, you, you saw always that they came up with, well, but, but it has to be proportionate. And, 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 and so there were limits because the primacy was given to the economic freedoms and uh, social legislation was, was, was secondary legislation, so to say, also in the <clears throat> in the mind and in 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 in, in the, uh, well certainly also in decisions of the court of justice and that of course created this, uh, a very complicated situation because you cannot act with um, in in an economic way without thinking about the consequences for society without thinking uh, about the consequences for human beings without thinking for the cons about the consequences for workers. And that was quite problematic. And you see that th that has slowly changed. The, 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 uh, the Court of Justice in, in, in more recent uh, verdicts is, is, is more aware of the fact that you know, company law is not neutral. It's not. It's not a, a technical thing. That was the argument always. Same with public procurement. The public procurement in the beginning was said, "Well, it's a technical thing." No, it's, 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 it's public money. And if it is public money, then you can also uh, uh, have, let's say, um, societal motives to spend that. Not only the cheapest or whatever. And and uh, so that evolution to a certain extent has taken place and i must say that also with the outgoing commission now with juncker there is not only lip service but there is more uh, awareness of uh, that we need also this social dimension uh, that is not only about economics and breaking uh, deregulating and simplification or whatever 
So uh, concretely, there have been a couple of uh, decisions by the by the or rulings by the European Court of Justice yeah. uh, regarding collective bargaining and the yeah. use of collective action. Uh, yeah. Could you elaborate on that for us? It is already a long time ago eh, the, that that these uh, these acts uh, were discussed. The problem with uh, the decisions of the courts uh, at that time um, was that it partially was also uh, a question of poor implementation uh, by member states. Now, I mean, there has been a lot of fuss about uh, Laval, for instance, and I've predicted that there would be a case like Laval simply because the Swedish uh, government had not implemented uh, the posting directive. The, that's one of the, the reasons why I hesitated, because it's a long time ago and I can explain it, but it takes some time. Well, what, what happened in uh, um, the posting of workers directive has an article uh, that says that um, for the working conditions, um, collective agreements that are generally binding have to be respected by foreign companies that come over with posted workers. And um, based on uh, an amendment of the European Parliament that I formulated together with a Danish uh, uh, member of Parliament, it says that collective agreements that are de facto generally binding, so they are respected in uh, a sector, in an industry, um, also count, are, let's say, treated uh, uh, on the same footing as collective agreements that are made generally binding by law. Now, what happened was that the, uh, the Danish government didn't implement that Article 3.8 because they said, well, we have 100% uh, discipline on the employers and on the union side that they stick to their agreement. And they have promised also that this 100% discipline is also applicable for foreign companies that come over. Uh, and they advised the Swedish government, who was just who just had become a member of the European Union, they said, well, we are the real experts in Europe. You don't have to implement this article because it's against the, the, the Nordic model. Nordic model says that there is autonomy of social partners and the government should not uh, mix up with, should not deal with, uh, with pay issues because that's the autonomy of social partners. So the Swedish government didn't implement three, uh, Article 3.8 um, but this, in Sweden, there was not this uh, deal, there was not this agreement between employers and, uh, and, 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 and unions of 100% discipline. So, in fact, uh, if you don't, let's say, have this guarantee that national companies will stick to the agreement, then you cannot ask it from foreign companies. That was, in fact, what happened. So the court case with Laval was there was a foreign company coming in. They didn't respect the, the, the Swedish uh, voluntary uh, collective agreements. They didn't want to negotiate, although that is a normal practice in Sweden. Um, and they, in fact, there was there was a, <coughs> a picket line, and there was a, a trade union action, and so on and so on. 
And Laval went to the uh, uh, Court of Justice, backed up also by the Swedish employers, and won the case because they said, well, if, if you cannot guarantee, if there is not a, eh, if it is not obligatory for uh, national companies, you cannot ask this from foreign companies. The interesting thing would have been, and that, that is why, why I was so mad about this case, if they had implemented Article 3.8, then I'm quite sure that the Laval case would not have taken place. Because 3.8 said, well, if there is de facto, eh, if there is in practice disrespect, because in practice there is disrespect in Sweden, like it is in Denmark, based on the autonomy, but anyway, also on the fact that yeah, once an agreement is done, then it is agreed. Um, that would have been a complete other case. Because what, what happened in fact... And the, the late uh, Brian Bacusson uh, <coughs> that I discussed it with in, in those days, in, in fact, also predicted Laval. He said, well, it's just, we just have to wait for one company who doesn't respect. But, uh, uh, you know, what happened in the, as the posting directive was, was negotiated in 1994, 95, 96, before it was concluded, was very interesting because, in fact, through... Uh, legal frame also those neg negotiations that were uh, let's say based on the autonomy of the social partners were taken on board of the regime that had to be respected so in fact it was very interesting but because Denmark and Sweden didn't implement it we never got to a situation where this was also let's say um, examined assessed by the court um, and the funny thing was, what uh, uh, then uh, there was a lot of fuss, of course, about this uh, and so on and so on. And then they, uh, <coughs> the Swedish government, had to come up with uh, uh, with a solution, and they called that the post Laval uh, uh, legislation. And what happened with the post Laval? That is exactly the implementation of Article three point eight of the of the directive. So we could have had a lot of. Um, other situations if if they had implemented it from the start. There were other cases, like the Rufert, for instance, in Germany, where the court was very restrictive. They, in fact, said, well, if in one of the Bundesländer there is a collective agreement that is generally binding, that does not apply because the European, uh, the posting directive only talks about national conventions and so on and so on. So there were there are a lot of arguments to say that the court was was very harsh and very negative, but there is also some other background and that is why I, I, I try to explain this Laval uh, situation. But in, in all in all, you can say the court gave primacy to the economic freedoms, the freedom to provide services and the workers' interest or the social aspects came second, <laughs> were secondary. So things have been moving uh, recently on the issue of posted workers with uh, a number of reforms that have been um, put forward recently, notably under, I understand, the leadership of the, of the French government, partly, with uh, this issue being quite prominent in France. Do you think these reforms are going in the right direction? Are they, uh, are they, are they far-reaching enough to solve the, all the problems that you highlighted uh, before? I don't want to say that this is uh, uh, under the French 
uh, guidance uh, because that that would be too simple i think uh, no no if you look at the the um, if you look at the problems with posting um, then um, i have to go back to what i said at the very beginning we have much more outsourcing we have much more let's say the recruitment of of, of workers through agencies middlemen uh, all kind of subsidiaries uh, in in other countries and we have this uh, uh, um, massive reservoir uh, of cheap uh, labor in Europe, somewhere in the region, whether that is in, in, the, in, in the rural area of Portugal or in, well, in certain other uh, regions in Spain and in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, whatever. Um, the, um, the frame that we have the social frame that we of regulation that we have established doesn't fit it, 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 the, it the, let's say the, the the market the internal market has accelerated and developed in such a way and to such a dimension that uh, all the social uh, initiatives that were established in the early 90s no longer so to say uh, uh, fit in the, the the real socio-economic situation that we are in they didn't keep pace with the, the evolution and the development that that is one thing uh, and the second thing is that uh, more and more countries became aware of the fact that there are these well to a certain extent loopholes contradictions uh, but also negative side effects of what we created so to say and um, well, for instance, also the the the, the former Dutch uh, government uh, before for this government, they 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 were aware of the fact that they, in fact, ha- had to do something. So the, the 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 notion of the necessity to take action was, uh, I think, created also because there were more and more uh, there was more and more evidence of. Uh, 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 negative consequences um, and if, if you look at what happened uh, uh, over the last few years then in fact um, you could say that um, the enforcement directive related to posting was in fact uh, an initiative to uh, um, to hand over or to strengthen the competence of member states to do more in the area of registration and notification of posting and so on and so on. To a certain extent, that was already in the old directive, but it was necessary also to 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 yeah to stress that or to confirm that, partly based on uh, the margins that were still there after the Court of Justice uh, verdict. There were margins. Hey, how far can you go as, as, as a host country, as a home country? And to what extent uh, do we need uh, further, uh, let's say, confirmation of what can be done? That was one thing. And the second thing was, of course, that the revision of the directive uh, was also... Um, um, an effort to uh, revise it more, to update it more to towards the socio-economic reality of today. Um, for instance, by looking much more at uh, artificial arrangements, letterbox companies, and so on and so on, and 
establishing a stronger cooperation uh, between the authorities that had to check and control whether everything was uh, done in a genuine way. So it fits in in a broader uh, um, evolution, I think. Uh, we have more experience with the internal market. We have had, of course, 10 years of crisis uh, where you saw to a certain extent also that uh, there was huge unemployment, but on the other hand, uh, labor mobility continued um, in a, once in a while in a very questionable uh, way. So there were more mechanisms necessary to, to keep, uh, uh, let's say, a decent labor market upright. Um, what the, the latest development now with the European Labor Authority is that... Um, yeah, in fact, it is very strange that we have created this, uh, this this internal market, that we have an authority that watches over, for instance, consumer rights, that watches over uh, whether uh, uh, competition rules are respected, but there is no authority that, that monitors, so to say, uh, respect transnational respect for workers' rights. And in fact, this should have been established 30 years ago. The, the funny thing was that in the, let's say, 30 years ago, um, also as uh, uh, I was still a trade unionist in that, that period, uh, as I discussed this with uh, colleagues in Brussels, they all said, oh, this is not important. Labor mobility is, 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 is yeah, it's a small uh, percentage uh, and so on and so on. Whilst I, together with some other colleagues, said, no, but this will become a structural component of uh, the labor market. The national labor market will be, become more Europeanized, so to say. So we need uh, instruments also to monitor uh, this uh, development and so on. And in fact, I think that if we had created the European Labour Authority, uh, let's say 25 years ago, a lot of the activities that were now dispersed over a European platform for the tackling of undeclared work and uh, 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 a working committee for posting and an expert group for social security probably would all be integrated in this uh, authority. Um, and I think that it is, um, so we are very late, but it is, I think, very important to, and I come back to something that I said uh, at the very beginning, to have this authority that monitors the evolution of labor mobility also, let's say, more in a horizontal way, in, a, in an integral way, that, that, that we don't think in silos. Okay, this is the social security of this uh, <laughs> labor migrant, and this is this pay, and this is this labor contract, and so on and so on. So that, uh, <clears throat> now, the idea uh, with the... Uh, uh, labor authority is first and for all that the competence of national uh, compliance officers that cooperate, you know, the Belgians with uh, the Polish and the Maltese <laughs> in the case, that their competence, so to say, is strengthened, that, they, that it's authorized that they do this work, uh, but that, that there is also a stronger obligation for member states then to uh, uh, to cooperate in that that kind of investigations. That, that, is, that is the basic idea. Um, and if you look at files that I have uh, um, examined, for instance, you see that, uh, uh, and I mentioned it before, that 
well, uh, the Belgium or the Dutch Labour Inspectorate is always confronted with this uh, uh, territorial border, with its own territorial border. Um, if that is the case in complicated situations, in fact, the European Labour Authority should authorize and uh, legitimize that, that they cooperate together. And also, and that is, I think, important, that their joint juridical uh, findings also have a legal value at home. Because now, you know, if you are a labor inspector and you have a complicated case uh, uh, with the Portuguese, and the Portuguese uh, colleagues are very willing to cooperate because I know that they have a, a, a unit that is very active in, in Portugal. If you visit them, then you are a guest. You're a tourist. You're, you're not there ex officio, so to say. You are not there uh, to, you cannot m make your own PV, so to say, and, and use that at home. And that, 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 has, that has to be settled as well. And that, that is one of the things that is in that European Labour Authority. So what you see is, we, we, had a, we talked about repair earlier on. This is, this is uh, uh, absolutely necessary, not only a kind of maintenance of the system, but also repair of the system. But it is the first step. It has to be elaborated much more. And to conclude on, on a broader issue, there seems to be um, a relatively large number on the left who seem to have somehow given up on the possibility for um, regulating this relationship between labor mobility and social and labor standards at the EU level. Uh, if I think about movements in Germany like Aufstein and others, uh, including the Netherlands, and their response seems to be that because the EU is institutionally driven to be some sort of neoliberal project, the only answer to be able to protect wage standards is a retreat to the nation state by limiting labor mobility. You seem to, you seem to say that this is still, you still believe in the prospect of establishing a transnational way of ensuring uh, the right balance between freedom, movement, and, and, and equality in some way. Yeah, well... It is a bit like I said at the very beginning. I'm very much in favor of the free movement of workers, free movement of citizens. Um, and I very often have the feeling that if, if this, let's say, this restrictive uh, arguments are coming up, that, that we want this free movement for us, for ourselves, but not for the others. And that is something that I um, that I've well I'm uh, of course uh, completely against. Um, that is also a bit uh, you know if you look at the Brexit uh, debate, it is uh, the, uh, the 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 Brexiteers uh, whether they were from the uh, almost well fundamentalist uh, left or, or or the right, they they always uh, if you, if you analyze it, it is they they want this freedom for themselves but not for the others. Um, and I think that that is, um, well, it, it, it goes against uh, uh, my uh, view of how things should, should go. And uh, the um, I have also some almost biographical arguments uh, for it. You know, I was for, uh, very often I was in, in, in the former GDR in East Germany and... Uh, there you were constantly confronted with uh, with the wall, 
um, uh, uh, separating families uh, um, uh, and whatever. And I um, have really felt as I was there what it means to have this liberty to go somewhere. I mean, even people said it to me when I was sitting in a pub in Eastern Germany uh, and we had 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 a few beers. Then people said to me, you know, what I would like to do, like you do now, you come to our uh, city, in your city, and you go back home. Well, I would like to go to the uh, carnival in Cologne, for instance, and I will come back because I have my job here, I have my family here, and so on and so on. Uh, that's a very basic, uh, let's say, uh, feeling of uh, where are we going to? And... Um, of course, what you see now is that uh, uh, this withdrawal behind national borders, uh, I think that it would really create a situation where a lot of advantages, day-to-day advantages, uh, disappear. Look at the Brexit. I mean, uh, what is happening now in the Brexit? What are the key uh, problems um, and what brought the European Union for the United Kingdom and especially for people from Northern Ireland. I I visited Northern Ireland uh, last summer. There was no border. Families were no longer separated because there was a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And people from Belfast in the weekend went over to Donegal and they had a summer house there and so on. So there was the European Union brought there, in fact, let's say a complete... Disappeared feeling of we are separated from each other. Uh, Now, well, if 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 uh, one of the key issues now, of course, in the Brexit is this that 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 it would uh, again create a hard border, and I'm I'm very much against that. The other thing is that I also still believe in what the Germans call the strategy of the Einmischung. So that uh, that you have to, uh, that it is it is relatively easy to stay on the sideline and say that that everything is is going wrong. But I um, I think that we should have mobilized much more, also in let's say in in the years of neoliberalism, much more, uh, uh, let's say uh, the uh, people that that are aware of this social dimension and that that it is necessary and of course we had to fight in 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 the mid 90s and later on we had to fight also against uh, uh, a a wave of neoliberalism that spoiled everything I mean uh, all political groupings were uh, in fact uh, uh, influenced by that and, and, and that has created this, a situation where deregulation, privatization also of, of, of in fact, basic provisions that should be public uh, took place. And you see that some countries also were even more neoliberal than others. Uh, I mean, a lot of our colleagues in Europe say that we are the most Anglo, the Dutch are the most Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> the Netherlands is the most Anglo-Saxon country from even more Anglo-Saxon than England, so to say, uh, from the continent. And I think that that to a certain extent is true. We have uh, uh, privatized a lot of uh, uh, public goods where uh, you can question 
whether that was wise or whether that, whether it is not, let's say, the public authority that at least should take the lead. It doesn't mean that you also have to, let's say, to execute the job, but has to has the political control over uh, what is happening. You know, delivery of post, uh, public transport, and so on and so on. Uh, these kind of things. So finding a right balance between state and market. I think yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a good uh, word for the end. Thank you very much, yeah. Jan, for very insightful uh, comments about uh, this very important issue. I'm very curious about what you are going to do with it, but I <laughs> will hear, will hear Cut from it. it. Up, yeah, got it up, but then only take the slogans. Yeah.